Hello, everyone. Good evening and welcome to our Sphere Professional Development Program, Elections, Voting Rights and Reform. I'm Karen Rossiter, the manager and senior trainer here at Sphere. We're so happy you are here with us tonight. Um, many of you have been to other webinars of ours, so you know this, but just a reminder, please post questions in the chat and we will get to your questions at the end of the conversation. Also, after the panel conversation, we will be welcoming Carrie Ray Hill from iCivics to offer valuable professional development on this topic. So make sure you stay, um, stay logged on after the panel. For those of you unfamiliar with iCivics, it's a nonpartisan organization which works to inspire lifelong civic engagement by providing high quality and engaging civic resources to teachers and students across our nation. And they are also a trusted partner here at Sphere. So let's get started with the conversation. Joining our panel tonight is Dan McLaughlin. Dan is a senior writer at National Review Online. He was formerly an attorney practicing securities and commercial litigation in New York City, a contributing editor of Red State, of Red State a columnist at The Federalist and The New Ledger, a baseball blogger at baseballcrank.com, bostonsportsguy.com, The Providence Journal Online, and a contributor to the Command Post. His writings on politics, baseball, and law have appeared in numerous other newspapers, magazines, websites, and legal journal journals. Welcome, Dan, and thank you for being here with us. Great to be also here. Join also joining us tonight is Cato's own Walter Olson. Walter is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies and is known for his writing on American legal on the American legal system. His books include the Role of Lawyers on Mass Litigation, The Excuse Factory on Lawsuits in the Workplace, and most recently, Schools for Misrule on the State of Law Schools. He has advised many public officials from the White House to town councils, and in 2015 was named by Governor Larry Hogan to be the co-chair of the Maryland, Maryland Redistricting Reform Commission, which issued its report recommendations later that year to acclaim across the state. So. Whew, that was a lot. All right, everybody, thank you for being here. Um, and let's just jump in and get started. Walter, why don't you give us a brief history of elections in America? Okay, uh, thank you, Karen. Uh, thank you, uh, iSphere and, or uh, thank you, Sphere and, and iCivics. Um, that is a tall order, but let me give you <laughs> a nutshell version, which is that uh, elections and voting in America have constantly changed. Um, that is the constant is that uh, they are always in flux from the founding period to this. And you see that on the big issues, of course, of who can vote, the extension of the franchise from originally a small group to more and more different groups. You see it on what people can vote about, uh, things like the direct election of US senators, the rise of the party system, and much later, the rise of the primary system, um, rise of initiative and referendum. And you see it in the methods of voting. And that's a less discussed area, but I think equally fascinating. Uh, uh, I was surprised to learn, and yet I now think of this as the uh, one of the key things that people often don't know, that the secret ballot uh, is a relatively modern innovation. It was not something that the founders necessarily expected, let alone put in the Constitution. Uh, over much of the first century, especially of American history, um, you might file into a room where there was one box for one party, put your slip of paper in that, another box if you voted for, wanted to vote for the other candidate, uh, so your neighbors could see 
you. I, I realized afterward that this was like New England town meeting, which I've also participated in when I lived in New England. But, um, but for a lot of that time, the local political boss might be sitting there in a chair to watch which up candidate you voted for. So very different expectations. And um, so uh, it is a moving target. We continue to debate today as we have always debated. Uh, what are the best ways to do democracy? Oh, sorry there. Thank you. So when you were talking about the secret ballot, that just, uh, it makes me laugh a little bit because I remember the last election and when I went to vote, everybody was like hiding, right? <laughs> so like they didn't want anybody to see and they were like hunched over. So I think that's really, um, I think that's really an interesting point. Somebody has a question. How modern is the secret ballot? Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in on that, I mean, the secret ballot, what? the secret ballot, it's called the Australian ballot, it really came in in the the mid 19th century and, and took some decades to come in. Um, I, I recall reading uh, Lord Palmerston, the British uh, prime minister in the 1860s who, uh, who insisted he was an opponent of the secret ballot and insisted that it was you know, unmanly and ungentlemanly for an Englishman to uh, cast his ballot furtively in secret. He should do it in the full view of his neighbors. So uh, it was something that came in gradually over the middle of the 19th century. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, I mean, we, we had, uh, you know, a number of the changes that came in, that came in in the ballot uh, from, you know, voter registration begins in the 1820s and 1830s around the same time that we had the expansion to, you know, from a landowning to a sort of everybody votes model. Uh, and, and so in the, the middle of the 19th century is when you get the beginnings of expanding the franchise as well to, uh, to women uh, in some states, only a few states, as, as well as to uh, African Americans, which obviously was something that was contested for a, a full century after that. One of the uh, people in the chat box suggests the progressive era. I would place it a little earlier than that, because in the post-Civil War era, by the 1870s and 1880s, which is earlier than we ordinarily did to the progressive era, but nonetheless, uh, one of the first big campaigns in which reformist public opinion um, uh, made itself felt across the country, including states that were very different in other ways. Thank you. That's a that's such an interesting start to all of this that we're going to be discussing tonight. So thank you for that. Um, Dan, why don't we just jump to you? Uh, can you explain a little bit about this year's elections? More specifically, what are some issues coming up in the next week uh, in the state and local level? Yeah, so we have, I mean, it, this is an off-year election, obviously. So we have, you know, the, the big ticket elections that are going on are only in a few states, uh, the New York City mayor and, and the number of local elections here in New York, uh, governor's races in Virginia and, and New Jersey. But uh, in terms of systemic reforms, um, New York, uh, again, where I, I live on Long Island, um, we have uh, three of the ballot propositions are systemic reforms. Uh, the first is a redistricting reform, Proposition 1, um, which I think the critics of the reform will note uh, is sort of one of these extremely long ballot propositions that does like six different things at once. Uh, and so there's a lot of different reasons why some people may be in favor of parts of Proposition 1 and not others. It's essentially, it's designed to scale back some of the redistricting reforms, essentially what we're considered anti-gerrymandering reforms that were passed in New York in 2014. 
Uh, it would make it easier essentially for one party to pass their own maps uh, through the system. Uh, it also makes a number of changes to, it, it would cap the number of uh, state senators. It would, it would change the way the population of districts is determined to include both um, uh, people who are in the country illegally, as well as uh, one of the issues that's actually it's been a fight in a number of states, which is where do you count the citizenship of people who are serving long-term prison sentences? Um, in New York, the upstate rural districts say, these people live here, they're citizens, uh, because the prisons are upstate and nobody wants a prison, so we should be compensated for that by getting to count the prisoners as, as our constituents. And whereas obviously the, you know, the bulk of New York state prisoners are from, from the city or the densely populated areas around the city. Um, so this would, would change that to uh, their location of residence. And it's actually the, the sort of self-appointed good government groups are actually divided on this common cause uh, in favor of Proposition 1, the League of Women Voters as opposed to it. Um, so uh, there's also a Proposition 3, which would eliminate the 10-day advance requirement for voter registration. Uh, voter registration, and this is, a, this is a major kind of ongoing debate, right, in our system about do we have, is voter registration something that ought to be an important part of the system, or is it just some bump in the road that we ought to use to get to the ballot box? And so Proposition 3 would allow same-day registration, which is not currently legal in New York, uh, but which does exist in some other states. Um, and then Proposition 4, which would allow for no excuses absentee balloting, which would essentially be sort of universal mail-in voting, uh, which again is something that exists only in a couple states expanded at least temporarily during the pandemic, um, but is certainly not something that has been the rule in New York. New York actually has um, has had what are considered on the spectrum of things fairly restrictive voting laws in a lot of ways. Um, it has not until only fairly recently uh, added early voting, for example. Uh, and so some of this is uh, the state's progressives flexing their muscles to try to bring in uh, some changes that already exist in some other places. Oh, Walter, you're on mute. <laughs> um, I would add one of the interesting things going on this uh, fall was is, um, uh, as usual, there are a couple of states whose political calendars are out of sync with uh, the countries, Virginia and uh, New Jersey um, elect their governors in these off years. And uh, it's one of my favorite kind of topics to get people thinking about political theory. Uh, how does politics differ if you synchronize versus if you anti-synchronize elections with a national cycle? Uh, different group of people come out and vote. Uh, um, in Virginia and New Jersey, uh, it's kind of notorious that these are looked at for signs of a political reaction against the party that just won nationally the year before. And sure enough, the Virginia race is being read that way. But uh, here in Maryland, Frederick, the city that I live close to, um, also anti-synchronizes its mayoral races. And it goes through a periodic debate about uh, why is turnout so low? Well, you know, you, 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 that's the cost of anti-synchronizing. If you're not in a place like Virginia where, you know, it's gonna build its own enthusiasm, you may dampen enthusiasm. But on the other hand, it also might keep a community like ours freer of some of the bad feeling and mudslinging that goes on with national debates. So as I say, a, a fun topic to debate either way. 
Yeah, Virginia is a fascinating case because obviously if you look right next door to it, to the north is, is Maryland and, and West Virginia, which hold their gubernatorial races in the traditional 2022, right, the off-year elections. And to the south, you have, south, you have North Carolina, which has completely synchronized its race. So the governor is elected in the presidential year. Um, I mean, here in New York, in New York, uh, New York City has had tremendously low voter turnout in recent races. Um, I mean, I think Bill de Blasio, who won overwhelming majorities of the people who voted, uh, never got 800,000 votes in an election in a city of 8 million people. Uh, and so, you know, and so we have another, another such race this fall. Dan, why do you think that is? Why do you think the New Yorkers just aren't going out to vote? I mean, in part, it's because of the fact that the, that the, um, the Democrats have an overwhelming dominance and, 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 you know, and so the primary has been a hotter topic, but at the same time, you know, if you look back to like uh, the races that Rudy Giuliani and David mm -hmm. Dinkins had in 1989, 1993, turnout was huge. I think there's, there's maybe less of a sense that there's big things at stake. Right. No, that does make sense now that I think about it. Um, great. Thank you guys. So both of you, uh, either one of you can jump in on this, but can you talk a little bit about election integrity versus the ease of access? This has kind of been the controversy lately. Well, sure, Karen. Uh, there is obviously some tension. The um, more you put in um, measures to make absolutely sure that uh, no one is going to be able to take advantage of the system, the more you may impede the convenience. I'll start out by saying, however, that as a country, we should be very proud of how well we do on both of those dimensions. Um, America has not always been a land of clean, honest elections, but uh, the search for fraud, both in the last six or eight months and more broadly the last couple of decades hardly ever turns up anything that is really widespread fraud. I mean, the sort of thing it catches is you know, someone has houses in two states and they're not honest about how they synchronize their voting or sometimes people will um, uh, you know, the, uh, forge one or two, you know, like spousal signatures. But as for the thing that is worried about, which is a thousand votes changing or uh, re election results changing, um, we, are, we do very, very well as a country these days at preventing that. Now, we also, I would argue, do well at convenience. And I think that we ought to continue working on that because uh, a modern society expects more convenience. We get it in other areas. Uh, I think that it's perfectly proper for those revising the election laws to, um, to want there to be more convenient options as far as mail voting and so forth. With that, I've avoided all the truly controversial stuff. So I'll hand it over to Dan, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you'll let me throw the bombs here. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with Walter that, look, I mean, there, you know, there are legitimate controversies over voter fraud and, and integrity. There are legitimate controversies over voter suppression, but both of these are very, very much things that happen extremely at the margins. Um, if you look at you know, elections that have been thrown out by the courts for fraud and people have been convicted for voter fraud. It happens. Uh, and but those elections are almost always elections decided by a thousand votes or less. Um, you know, the last really enormous uh, voter fraud case in the United States was 1982, the Illinois governor phrase. And the FBI found something like 100,000 fraudulent votes in Chicago. But how did they find them? By using a brand new tool, the computer. Um, and you know, I think since then, 
you know, the word has gone out that it's much more difficult to do any sort of large scale systemic voter fraud. And so, you know, the last election that was thrown out in the United States for voter fraud was in March of 2021, right? Which is not that long ago. It was a primary election in, Mass in uh, Mississippi. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the elections, the handful of elections that have been thrown out in the last uh, decade or so um, have been much more likely to be primary elections than, uh, than general elections. So the, you know, the almost always we're talking about you know, a few dozen votes or a hundred, but you know, it's not very large. It's 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 easy to get away with, you know, casting a very small number of fraudulent votes in the United States. Very very hard to do it on in any kind of large scale. Um, and, and this gets us into questions of technology. And I'd like to put in my my good word for not being too afraid of technology, because those areas in which city uh, machines stole a lot of ballots were not uh, um, hey, can you can everybody sorry, mute them? Can everybody else mute themselves, please? Yeah. Thank um, you. Sorry, Walter. And, and although um, modern voting machines had their problems, in particular, they can break down and cause chaos when they do break down. Um, they have been one of the reasons why. Uh, notice in 1982, that's just, it's going to be 40 years ago next year, uh, why in general we've made such progress is that um, the machines improved, the machines improved in the trail that they leave that can be checked. Um, bad machine designs eventually get discovered and thrown out. Uh, again, I'm not going to claim that all the problems have been solved, but the, um, uh, the, the direction is good. And you can also see, and here we're moving away from fraud to uncertainty about elections. Um, we remember the, um, the 2000 election and the uncertainty between Gore and Bush uh, nearly uh, brought us to a constitutional crisis if things had gone a little bit different. Well, the aftermath or the, the after story is kind of encouraging to me, which is that in Florida, which of course was the butt of a lot of jokes nationwide about it, uh, uh, there was widespread buy-in and from people in both parties to uh, the realization that they needed to uh, improve the mechanics of voting. Uh, no more hanging chads if they could avoid them. And so in this last election, uh, Florida emerged as kind of a national exemplar because they had their results on election night. Many other states uh, stuck with older technologies and uh, with thought, without having devoted as much thought to how systems should work, weren't reporting until a day later. And so um, Florida, um, uh, you know, got it right in a bunch of ways. I, I, one thing I really urge between now and the next presidential election is that the states that didn't report their votes for 24 hours, please go and imitate Florida. So we never want that to be hanging for 24 hours again. Wow, thank you. I remember that election. I'm so glad we've moved on from that election, the hanging chats. I remember people went, that was their Halloween costumes that year. Do you remember that? It was big. Um, Okay, so we're kind of we're going to be talking about the same thing, but we're going to talk about um, there's been a lot of legislative actions at the state and federal levels about elections, right? About these two sides. So one side arguing arguing integrity, and the other is concerned about ease of access. So we hear it on the media that that's kind of the battle, you know. And then even just in this um, conversation, we've mentioned somebody um, they mentioned you know the same day registration uh, a. a um, a viewer mentioned that Texas outlawed drive-through voting. So 
um, there's, you know, we've already brought up some of these topics, but I guess just what's really happening, right? Legislatively, are we restricting voting? Are we um, trying, are we arguing the integrity of it? So if you guys could kind of let us know what's really happening. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of, I mean, the movement, the movement is, uh, you know, it's in both parties, but it's, it's principally the state level movement has mostly been in states run by Republicans. Obviously, we, we see here in New York, uh, you know, some of the ballot initiatives being proposed by Democrats, but um, a lot of Republican states, and, and, and let's be blunt here, I mean, a lot of what's going on is that Republicans have, you know, longstanding views about uh, election integrity. Um, and at the same time, they're hearing, you know, many Republican legislators are hearing from their, you know, their voters that they're sort of all up in arms because they listened to Donald Trump and they're convinced that the 2020 election was rigged. Um, and at the same time, they're also concerned that, you know, they feel that that an awful lot of things were changed on an emergency basis in 2020 uh, that were not done uniformly statewide, that maybe, uh, or that maybe were temporary things that shouldn't be made permanent. Um, and so I think what you have, you know, there's a mess of proposals, right? And, and all sorts of crazy things get proposed. But I think what you have with a lot of state legislatures in places like Texas and Georgia um, is an attempt by the Republicans who kind of run their party to um, sort of balance things out and say, look, let's see if we can use some of this energy that's out there, the grassroots energy to promote the things that we think are good things um, and maybe you know, get rid of some things that we think are bad things um, or, or things that we can, in some cases, get away with out of partisan self-interest uh, without crossing over into, you know, what they view, what a lot of Republican legislators even view as sort of crazy conspiracy territory. And so there, 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 there's, there's a push and pull there. And I think almost all of these bills include, you know, a number of things that are standard uh, conventional longstanding Republican priorities and some things that are, that are maybe a little more controversial, but typically the things that are the most uh, extremely controversial are often things that get proposed and don't end up in the final bills. Okay. Well, let me give my uh, angle on it, which is first, uh, one of the big things that has changed has nothing to do with the um, uh, conventional politics of 2020. It had to do with the pandemic and the fact that responding to the pandemic, um, nearly all states changed their procedure at least somewhat, and, and some states changed them very, very substantially. Uh, uh, Drop boxes, for example, uh, were widely used. I voted that way myself. Uh, early voting was a way of social distancing in a way. And so, of course, was easier access to mail balloting. Now, um, I am a convenience kind of guy. I mean, call, call me lazy, but I actually would like to see, if the cost is not too high, um, like to see those options uh, in many cases preserved. And I say the cost because having worked with local election boards, I realized that it's easy for we outsiders to say, oh yeah, do 25 days of early voting. And then you turn to the volunteers. And the, of course, the volunteer base collapsed last year because it's mostly retired people and they were very afraid of, not unreasonably, of, of being near crowds. But 
Again, some of the things that people ask for are very hard on local election administrators, and that can have to do with uh, both expanding, you know, 20 days of early voting in a Texas county that may have 500 people in it, or it uh, may have to do with, um, uh, you know, you have to allow same-day voting even though, uh, you know, you are in unusual circumstances where it's just very hard for you to feel uh, confident. But, but again, I listen, try to listen to the local election administrators. That having been said, I am glad to see more experiments in states like I think Oregon and Colorado with all by mail. Uh, I look at Europe and I see the various uh, advances that you have, some of them rather futuristic, you know, but vote from home, you know, by computer for everyone. And I realize my own libertarian friends sometimes are going to be the ones who stop that by never, ever, ever uh, uh, approving an identity card, you know, a, a standardized voter, uh, driver's license or something. And I also think, uh, you know, this is the 21st century. They, you know, we, we get other things that we want that way. Uh, I truly believe that Silicon Valley can give us some pretty strong security. Uh, find whoever does the bank security and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and bring them in. And, and you don't have to choose. I mean, that, and I will say there are some issues where I'm right there with Dan worrying about voter integrity. Uh, I worry about ballot harvesting, quote unquote, in which uh, a couple of states have decided it's a good idea to let someone go out there and be paid to collect a hundred ballots and turn them all in at once. Now, to me, you know, you've got a temptation issue there, and there have already been a couple of scandals in which uh, they said the envelope was sealed, but the envelope uh, turns out not to have been sealed. And then the person went in and voted for, you know, the down ballot offices that the person hadn't bothered to fill. Yeah, you can't have that. I mean, obviously you can't have that. And so, uh, and you also need to worry about privacy there, because if someone, um, I mean, imagine someone's boss saying, uh, hey, I'm, you know, there's, there's this race that's terribly important for governor. Uh, you don't mind if uh, we bring in a ballot harvester and everyone votes in there, you know, it's crazy to, to, to let that kind of thing go, go on. So yeah, you do want to uh, be cautious and, and regulate. So I can see why they, they do try to regulate some of the newer practices. Uh, someone in chat mentioned drive-through voting. I'm not sure drive-through voting went on anywhere except in, what is it, Houston? Like one, one or two big cities in Texas. And it was done as part of, kind of part of a symbolic tug of war where the cities were defying the state saying, we will do this any way we please. Um, you know, I'd rather, uh, I, you know, maybe let a couple of cities do it until we find out whether there are problems or not. In the meantime, uh, the drop boxes, you know, people will worry that the drop boxes will be firebombed by people who I'm not sure what point they wanted to make, but, you know, uh, and that didn't happen. So, so far, so good with the drop boxes, so far as I can see. Thank you. You just gave me a lot to think about, Walter. <laughs> I thought I knew where I stood, but now I'm like, that's a, all those points are so good, Dan and Walter. Thank you. Um, so we have a lot of questions coming in. So I'm going to see if we can talk about this one quickly, but it's it's popular and it's in the news, but um, especially in New York, I think. But um, ranked choice voting. What are your thoughts on the um, ranked choice voting? I, 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 I'm a skeptic of ranked choice voting on a couple of grounds. Um, one is, and particularly in, in places like New York and California, that are already desperately incompetent at, at counting votes on time. Um, and, and when you add into that an enormously much more complicated system, um, I, I don't think that it's really worth the strain that it puts on system. You know, 
it, it might be different if we were talking about Texas or Florida uh, that, that count votes swiftly. I, I'd still be skeptical. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I mean, I look, I'm a traditionalist. I like the idea that, you know, you get your one choice between the two parties. I don't like runoffs. I don't like jungle primaries, um, you know, and I don't like ranked choice voting because I think at the end of the day, there is some value to just saying, look, you know, you 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 make your choice between these two options, um, you know, and, and particularly, obviously, ranked choice voting is a little different when you're talking about primary elections where you often have a much more crowded field. Um, but the the other equity issue is that I think, it, you know, there are reasons to believe that um, more educated kind of more upscale voters are much more likely to use the many options on the ballot than perhaps the uh, you know, sort of less educated, more working class voters. And that, I think that, that, that does create a bit of a concern to me that, that ranked choice voting is, is helping, um, you know, sort of the more informed voter get a leg up. Okay, I, I have to jump in. And as uh, Karen may know, I, I am on the National Advisory Board of Rank the Vote. So of course, my views are mostly the opposite of Dan's on this, although not entirely. I do agree, you don't want to use New York City elections as your testing ground for anything, because the incompetence level is enough to set back our cause by 10 years. But having heard the case against ranked choice voting, let me now try to give you in a nutshell the case for ranked choice voting, which is that um, the the first past the post system in which um, you are uh, strongly pressured to vote for a candidate that you really can't stand because they're marginally less bad than uh, the one who's likely to win. And the candidate you actually like uh, is in there and you can't even signal that without becoming a quote spoiler unquote and getting everyone to hate you. Um, this makes so much less sense than the countries and ranked choice voting has been around in Australia and Ireland. These are not radical countries folks, you know, these are not communists, you know, burning down, uh, you know, Dublin and Sydney, you know, th these are sensible people who've made ranked choice voting work for a long time. Now, let me say about New York, which kind of a worst case scenario as far as how long it took them to count it, we are beginning to get some information about New York's very interesting experience. And there you had uh, aside from the previous uh, election method, having elected Mayor de Blasio, who was pro probably not, in fact, uh, you know, the objectively most popular guy in his own election, but you know, slipped through because of the division of his opponents, um, you have you had Rancher's voting called forth an interesting array of candidates, and the voters seemed to do a pretty sophisticated job as far as uh, the way they switched. They uh, uh, among the evidence that I was hearing at a, a presentation on this the other day is, for example, um, uh, exhaustion of ballots. That's the jargon for people not using all of their votes. Um, was no different between different racial groups, for example. Now, some people did quite consciously, uh, you know, not go down the ballot and, and use all of their votes. Um, but the system is relatively easy to learn. It has been used in states like Maine, where it worked very well its first year, and the uh, both uh, Senator Susan Collins and her Democratic opponent uh, both campaigned in the right way, which is um, uh, they uh, both the the fringe 
fringe candidates, their sides rather, um, were not so fringy that they did not remember say, uh, to say, use your number two vote for the, the candidate who is kind of ideologically like me. And that's what main people basically did. So you'd, confusion is much less than people warn you about. And uh, there is some evidence that ranked choice voting changes the way politicians campaign because they realize they want those uh, lower votes. And so they're not as nasty and negative. Uh, they want to try to get some number two and number three votes from the candidates that they're running against. You get a little more effect of pulling people toward the center and making people realize that their opponents are not absolute demons flown down to earth from the nether regions with wings and a tail. You know, their <laughs> opponents actually are also publicly spirited. I think this is a great way to go. I will note that the um, one of the few uh, notable examples of uh, somebody who actually won their race because of ranked choice voting is the district attorney in San Francisco, who is now already facing a recall election. So, um, you know, in, in part because he is a fairly radical. Chesa Putin is not my uh, candidate, but then San Francisco is also not filled with people who think like either you or I. Yeah, it's, it's, true. it's its own thing. Maybe he was the right match for San Francisco's preferences. Oh, thank you. That was some great civil discourse, by the way. Thank you so much for that modeling. Um, the last question is going to be for Walter. Um, we have some questions about redistricting from the teachers, but also I know that you've been working on redistricting locally with Maryland. Do you want to explain a little bit? I think you had a meeting today even about something, but uh, explain to everyone what you're working on. I'm happy to, Karen, and um, my involvement um, uh, was renewed this year when Governor Larry Hogan uh, appointed a uh, call it tripartisan, three Democrats, three Republicans, and three independents, a citizen commission, most of them uh, volunteers, or all of us volunteers, and, and most of them with no prior experience, to propose new maps for a U.S. House uh, and both houses of the Maryland legislature, and uh, our uh, last public hearing is tomorrow night, and we meet Thursday night, uh, I hope, to approve our maps. All of our votes have been unanimous. Uh, I am going to start boasting here, which is the Princeton <laughs> Gerrymandering Project has rated two of our three maps, hasn't gotten the third one yet, and has given them an A for partisan fairness. Um, we had to compromise because we realized we had a bunch of different views around the room as far as uh, what geographies you know, belonged logically with what other ones, how to handle some of the other issues of districting. Um, we listened to each other, we came to compromises where that was appropriate, and all of our votes have been unanimous. Uh, I wish I could say that this is the way that independent or citizen redistricting has been going everywhere. As you know, if you follow the news, uh, the, the road has been very rocky in Virginia, where everyone had very high hopes, uh, in New York, in Michigan, uh, in some states, the Republican commissioners and the Democratic commissioners have each hired separate lawyers. Oh my goodness, that never bodes well. It's like a marriage where they hire separate lawyers. Uh, you know, you need to collaborate and and you know set aside partisanship, or else this is not going to work. In Virginia, I think one of the mistakes was to put. At, uh, there are just as many sitting legislators on the panel as there are citizens. And in those circumstances, the citizens are not the ones who know enough, they, you know, it, the legislators take over. And we were lucky we had a um, very experienced consultant. Let me tell you, if your state is gonna do independent citizen commissioning, they need an, a 
um, a consultant who's been around the block and represented uh, ideally both sides because you will be uh, uh, having to listen to that person on the legalities, things like the Voting Rights Act uh, and on many of the other issues. Uh, I don't want to claim credit for success yet, but again, the cause is so important. We can't go on for another two centuries with gerrymandering. We just, it's too stupid, you know, it's too damaging. So let's get, do what we need to to get rid of gerrymandering. Well, I appreciate that. And it's good to hear that at least Maryland is a, has some success there. Maybe if some other states, I see people in the chat saying their states aren't doing so well. I think somebody just said Michigan. So hopefully they can, uh, it can be done. That's good to know that it's possible. So thank you for that. Um, I do have another question actually. It's from a teacher about um, redistricting. So maybe one of you could answer this as well. Um, Will there be any significant redistricting for the House due to the recent census, because all that information just came out? If there is, which states will be the winners and who will be the losers? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, there definitely is. I mean, uh, obviously, Walter has referenced, you know, the redistricting going on in, in Maryland and in other states where um, that have not necessarily gained or lost seats, but but population is, re is redistributed within the state. Um, there are a number of states, uh, it, it, the reallocation of seats to the states was actually less dramatic than expected in part because I think the states that were on the block for chopping block for losing seats were much more aggressive about making sure that they got, you know, they, they put a lot of resources into getting everybody counted in the census yeah. and the states that were gaining population didn't. Um, but uh, you know, Florida, I think is is gaining. Uh, I think it's Florida is gaining one seat, and Texas two, or the other way around. I forget exactly the numbers, but um, you know, I think Michigan, uh, Minnesota, I think very very narrowly missed uh, losing a seat. Uh, New York is losing a seat. Uh, Illinois, um, you know, there's a bunch of sort of Northeast and Rust Belt places that are losing uh, losing seats. Um, so yeah, I see people in the chat noting Florida, yeah. Florida is getting one and Texas is getting two. Yeah. Texas, for example, in the next electoral college will have 40 electoral votes. Um, but, uh, so, you know, it, both the states that are gaining and losing Oregon, I think is gaining, um, and, and there's been a big fight out there, uh, you know, over, over how to redraw the map. Uh, Illinois is having a particularly bloody uh, fight over how to redraw the map, and they've had some fairly ridiculous maps proposed. Um, yeah, California, for the first time in its history, has gone down, mm -hmm. uh, down one seat. So it is definitely going to reshape things. I think it helps both parties in different okay. places. I think on, you know, in terms of partisanship, uh, there's definitely a sense that the Republicans are likely to gain more seats out of this, simply out of the shifts in, in where population is, uh, and Democrats are. But um, but there's there's a lot of local politics involved. I mean, you know, in, in New York, I mean, there's a lot of upstate versus downstate tension and, and that sort of thing is going on in Illinois as well. Uh, and let, let, let me, uh, if I could jump in with two other points. One of the questions in chat was about uh, whether everyone uh, has to redistrict. Uh, and, and this is driven by constitutional law. Uh, at the level of the House of Representatives, it has to be um, reshaped every 10 years because of this. And the Supreme Court has decided that uh, local 
um, bodies, including the state legislatures, but also uh, this extends to every county council that has geographic districting to uh, some school boards and various others that uh, where if it is districted by geography, it probably has to be uh, reapportioned and uh, redistricted in the year after the census. And the wild card in the pack uh, this year has been that the census was so terribly late. Um, most of us who have responsibility in this area uh, would have had what seems like this in retrospect, a leisurely, um, you know, the, the census numbers used to come out in the spring, April maybe. And instead, we didn't get ours until August or September, Maryland is a state that reallocates prisoners, and that took an extra, I think, three weeks. Um, and so um, some states are, are going to have to miss their deadlines. Uh, in other states, a process that might have gone on for six months is being compressed into more like six weeks, and that has to take its toll. Uh, you can't give it the attention to neighborhood by neighborhood that you would like if you have that much less time. Great, thank you. Um, another question is, do, um, do you guys, our speakers, believe that showing ID when you vote is considered voter suppression? Would you consider showing ID voter suppression? And you want to start or should I? I uh, yeah, you can you can lead off on this one. Okay, well. They, they ask hard questions, I, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether there's a single uh, stable definition of voter suppression. So I'll talk about the merits of the issue itself, which is uh, I watch it. I um, uh, stay on the sidelines because I thought people were spending much too much time in both directions and that when there were a bunch of other issues that probably made more of a difference. And I was therefore pleased anytime a, a uh, social science study comes up that backs up your own intuitions, you're always glad. And in this case, um, there were a couple that came out uh, this summer uh, finding that uh, whether a state did or did not have uh, uh, a voter ID did not seem to make any particular uh, difference in turnout or minority participation or any of those things that people worry about with suppression. And it also, and here's what the other side can take a victory lap, it also didn't have uh, any effect on security because the other methods in place for voter security are quite good, whether or not you have voter ID. So I continue to think if the state wants to pass this because uh, the public wants it, then it's probably bolstering a public uh, confidence in some way, but just don't expect this to have big results one way or the other. Other issues are the things where there's a bigger partisan impact in particular. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, uh, to me, voter ID is a very, I mean, it's obviously enormously popular across uh, virtually every line of, of voters. It's, it's only really with Democratic politicians that it's enormously unpopular. And even they have, have been breaking their resistance. Uh, a number of people who spent the last several years attacking voter ID who said they were willing to accept it in legislative compromises, although when you see the details of that, it usually involves them watering down what forms of ID are, are acceptable to extremely low level. But, um, but yeah, I don't think it, it, I think it's a fairly low cost way of, you know, not only instilling public confidence, but also, you know, deterring people from, from fraud. I mean, uh, more so than catching it, you know, is in uh, making people feel that, that, that it would be risky to, to engage in, um, in voter fraud. And, and, you know, the Supreme Court has blessed voter ID uh, back in 2008. I don't think that's likely to change. Um, 
you know, it, it has in the past been a bipartisan thing. I, the big frontier right now for voter ID is the question of what sort of ID you have to show to vote by mail, since, uh, you know, vote by mail is something that's expanded a lot um, in places that don't have rules in place. And in fact, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when there were a lot of fights over voter ID and in-person voting, uh, the big line from, from Democrats and liberals who were opposing it was, hey, the real threat of voter fraud is absentee and mail-in ballots. Uh, it's not in-person ballots. Obviously, that, that tune has changed very dramatically. Um, but, you know, I think the, the idea, um, you know, I talked a little bit about the history. I mean, you know, at the founding, uh, there was no voter registration, uh, in large part because it was essentially, you know, the local landowners who were voting. And in, you know, there was no secret ballot. Everybody's in a room. You all know each other. Right. Um, and so it was with the big expansion of the electorate in the 1820s and 1830s when they eliminated property requirements that the, uh, the Whig Party uh, actually uh, concerned about big Democratic voting machines in the cities. Right. Uh, and a lot of and a lot of uh, transient immigrants voting uh, started pushing for voter registration as, as what was then thought of as a good government reform. Um, and, you know, I think I think things like ID are part of the register. It goes back to the question of whether you want the voter registration system to mean something, right? If you have, and that goes to issues of both whether you show, you know, what proof you show to show that you are the registered person, to whether the registered lists are kept updated, uh, and to whether there's a certain time period between voter registration and voting so that the states can, can actually check the lists. Right. So that was, oh, sorry, go ahead, Walter. No, well, I, uh, just to continue on, on this, many of these are technological issues at, at every level. And uh, I know I was so struck, and I'll bet many other people were too, by the photos, this may have been 10, 15 years ago, of some countries in the Middle East that had really never had a chance at free and fair elections. And they put a purple dye on their fingers. Uh, it's the most low-tech thing you can imagine, but the dye wouldn't wear off within a day. And so they could uh, make sure there was not double voting by anyone. And they were raising their fingers out of pride in the fact that their country was having an honest election. Now, that's a tribute to super low technology. At the same time, you know, to, to get back to my kind of pro-technology stand, um, the system is currently run on a bunch of different um, clutches, some of which are low technology, but really not all that good. And signature matching is the one that comes to mind because um, that is often the front line. Uh, you're not going to have I uh, ID, but you are going to often have signature matching on things like absentee mail. Well, numbers out of Colorado were amazing of tens of thousands of ballots being rejected because the people who had to eyeball these things. And of course, once you think about it, you know, I have a 22-year-old, and of course, his signature has changed as, you know, people try out different ways of signing their names. Uh, they get physically feebler with it. I mean, all sorts of things happen, and the signature doesn't match. And all of a sudden, you've got someone's vote being, uh, you know, held up at least momentarily, and then the process after that can then save the day and, and let the person vote anyway. But again, uh, banks figured this out a while ago. You know, banks don't rely as much on signature matching. Um, and so uh, we... We can do better. I'm not going to suggest that we go to iris scanning or something because I don't trust the government with that information either. Uh, but we we shouldn't be afraid of ways to, uh, you know, whether it involves you know hash marks or something, uh, uh, ways to uh, prove our identity that aren't any of the things we've been mentioning and might work better. 
Yeah, every oh, now and then, okay. Walter's libertarianism does come out here. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, and, and, and some of the some of the Republican states that have actually been pushing to I think the Georgia bill, for example, was trying to get people to use their uh, driver's license numbers on absentee ballots uh, in order to make it less reliant on signature matching because of the fact that it's signature matching is a, it's a safeguard, but it's a it's a very uneven one. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, I have. We have about three more minutes, so if you can answer this question. So I'm going to, it's kind of a follow-up question. Um, what do you guys think about the poll watchers? They've been in the news lately. There's pictures of um, the early voting, and there's a bunch of poll watchers now sitting in where the, where people are voting. I mean, it seems to me that, that I mean, look, obviously, it would be nice to live in a society where we had complete and total trust in the people running the elections mm -hmm. uh, and and nobody thought that you needed you know the parties hiring their own people to keep an eye on the process but uh, I mean look I'm a lawyer I, I I have a certain amount of faith in 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 any situation in an adversarial system and I think having people on the ground from both parties everywhere uh, you know it does do a certain amount to keep things honest uh the the sense that, that and not only that but but to ensure that after the fact you don't have these conspiracy theories that say well you know they kicked all the people out of the room who were watching and you know well that's when the boxes started opening right the, yeah. so that's a big part of what it is it's just it's just having citizens there who can say you know look i was there as the democratic poll watcher i was there as a republican poll watcher i saw the whole thing unfold you know i objected to a few things to this or that but basically you know uh i was there and it it worked and here's a case where i just will uh straight out agree with uh dan's points here because um we couldn't do without them and still retain the type of confidence that most of the country has had most of the time in voting and transparency is important uh, the poll and we've got sophisticated rules on this the poll watchers can't be in places and close enough where they can see how people vote but they can observe enough of the process that if certain types of gross fraud are being perpetrated they're likely to catch it and cameras as we know from the controversies after the 2020 election uh, cameras can also play a role for example in disproving theories about you you moved in a different set of boxes well, if the camera was running, uh, you know, that's one piece of evidence right there. Um, we're doing better on this than people often fear. Okay. Yeah, and I, and 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 I yeah, and the cameras. I mean, it's like sort of the body cameras on cops and stuff. And and look, obviously, yeah, you don't you don't want to have poll watchers in a position to intimidate voters uh, ever. Right. Uh, and and so it is important. But I mean, I I would just close by if we're closing here by. Yes. Echoing yes. what Walter has said about the fact that that a good deal of the, these things are, you know, even though there are clashes of values involved, a good number of these things are technological in their nature. They are practical in their nature. They are things where if you come up with a solution that works, uh, very often you can solve both the things that one side is concerned about and the things the other is concerned about together at the same time. Okay. Well, I love to end on that note because that's a positive note and you guys agreed on it. So thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed your civic discourse, your points of view, and I feel like you've given me a lot to think about. So hopefully the teachers can now go to their classrooms and answer their students' questions and maybe think of some of these topics on their own. So thank you, Dan and Walter.